0: This sermon is from Grace Fellowship Church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. To access other sermons or to learn more about us, please visit our website at graceedmonton.ca. It's good to see everyone again. It's good to see visitors. So welcome uh, to Grace Fellowship Church. We hope that you're blessed today and that, uh, like I said, this message finds you well. so as we're continuing back our uh, series in 1 Corinthians, uh, while you guys flip to 1 um, Corinthians, we're looking at the tail end on the, on the heels of Shane's sermon last week, uh, the end of chapter 9. So as you guys are turning there and you guys are um, finding our spot, we're in verses uh, 24 to 27 this week. Um, I just want to give us a little bit of a fly, but I want to contextualize um, chapter 9. Um, because Paul is ending on an argument, and uh, I want it, it, it's beneficial for us to look at chapter nine to, to see what um, what Paul has talked about this chapter, and for us to see how he connects these last four verses to everything he said before. So, I want us to remember, um, beginning in chapter nine, he's talked about laboring, being a labor for the Lord, a shepherd, uh, and how um, as a labor, as a shepherd for the Lord, he's due his um, his blessings. Uh, he's re- he's to receive wages as a labor, and that, uh, and you find in verse nine. Uh, you shall not, you shall not uh, muzzle an ox when it treads out the, uh, the grain. So Paul is making the case that as a, as a labor for the Lord, um, he reserves his compensation, he reserves his wages. But then, following right immediately after that, he makes the claim, uh, the claim that in his Christian freedom, in his freedom in Christ, he has foregone that compensation. So he foregoes that compensation from the Corinthians specifically uh, in the effort that he would win souls for the kingdom. So Paul sets this case about being paid as a, la- as a laborer, as a shepherd, as a, as a layman for the Lord. And then he says, but however, I, as, a, as an example, have foregone this Christian, this Christian privilege um, so that I may win a few souls to the kingdom. He was a zealous evangelist. Paul, he understood the mandate of the gospel and knew that in the freedom that Jesus Christ brings, um, it also means being a zealous evangelist evangelist for the kingdom. It means to be zealous for the, for the kingdom um, and to win souls uh, to the kingdom of Christ. So, having said that, um, Paul concludes this chapter and he reveals an understanding about man um, that he wants to convey to us as well and that one that we need to understand as well. So, full disclosure um For those of you who don't really enjoy uh, sports analogies or um, competition, you guys aren't really much into competition, uh, I have to apologize a little bit because uh, we're going to lean heavily into that idea because it's biblical because Paul does it. So Paul leans really heavily on this idea of sports and competition uh, because Paul understood something really important about the human condition, about us made in the image and likeness of God. Men and women are competitors. We compete in some form or another. We all compete in and amongst the world, and this isn't by accident. So the question that we look to answer today, and we'll be looking at a couple things. Oh no, sorry, my thing is mixed up. The, what we're looking forward, oh, this is like a one week with Shane, oh no, <laughs> oh no, of course we'd give you technical issues now, okay, here it is. So again, the questions that we're looking to answer today is, okay, so if we are competitors, What does that mean for us to be competitors? What do we strive for? What is the prize? And if we are racers, if we are competitors in events, and if if this is the human condition, how do we run it? Where are we running to? What what is the prize and how do we get there? Again, just one quick glance at the world around us. Um, You look and you understand quite quickly that everybody is running. All men and women run. We compete and we chase after things that our hearts hold most dear. You, be it money, power, fame, political power, intrigue, etc., all men and women race for a prize. But for the Christian, we need to see the race and the prize clearly for what it should be. For us, the believers, the point of today's message is this. So this is the, point, this is the message, this is the, what Paul intends to correct in our, um, in our thinking with today's verse or today's passages. We race and compete for the Lord, who is himself our prize. I'll say that again, we race and we compete for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself our prize. So that is the question, again, that we're looking at and what Paul intends to correct in our theology, in our, in our view of him. And that should be our biggest takeaway, and we're going to explore that today. But um, again, but before we delve into our, pro- our passage proper, let us pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, we come before you with open hands. As we look around the landscape, Lord, we see, uh, we know that, Lord, the race that we run is difficult. Lord with life's uh, snares and toils, we press on knowing that we strive, and what we strive for is greater than all the earthly wealth and the riches that could ever bef- befall us. Ecclesiastes 3:11 says, "You have put eternity on man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. Lord, let us not be blind. I pray, Father, that it would be very clear to us today, right now at Grace Fellowship Church, that we run for a greater glory and a greater prize. We run for the imperishable Jesus Christ, who's worth nothing less than our most zealous efforts. And it is in His name that we pray this. Amen. So hoping everything cooperates with my technology, <laughs> no, no, more, no more issues. Today uh, we're going to look at three points. So uh, again, we're, g- we're just going to look at three points as Paul has laid out in verses 24 to 27. Um, and we're, we're going to work sequentially through the passage. So the first point, for those of us taking notes, is um, there's only one winner. All right, so this is verse 24. So right before we actually get into the verse, I kind of wanted to start today with a little bit of a brief history lesson, just the shortest uh, history lesson. So during our time uh, looking and studying 1 cor- uh, Corinthians, uh, we become really familiar with many aspects of the culture of, uh, of uh, the Church in Corinth and kind of the, the, the historical and the contru- uh, cultural leanings that were taking place at the time. Um, so we know because of the you know the geography and um, just the docks and just their their geographical location, this place was a, a bustling place. You know, uh, the Church in Corinth was 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 a busy place, and the and Corinthians like the the Corinthians knew what it looked like to be busy these, this was a mercantile town there's a lot happening um, however it brought along a lot of problems right as we've come to see uh, you know as we as we've as we've learned culturally uh, a lot of these a lot of this travel a lot of this, these thoughts um, brought along a lot of cultural vices and temptations for the church in Corinth so we've studied that quite a bit so we we laying that aside for just a minute not everything however was uh, did, did Paul frown upon in, in Corinth? He didn't frown upon every single thing culturally. And we see that in today's passage. Uh, during this time in history, there were two big sporting competitions. Well, there's a couple, but the big ones that concerned uh, the Church of Corinth were these two big ones. The first one that I think everyone here is familiar with, and these are the Olympiad Games. So again, this is uh, during this time, the Olympiad Games were running about every four years. Um, and. The other, the smaller games, but the more local games, um, were called the Ismithian games, a little bit of a tongue twister. But the Ismithian games, that's what they were called. So if someone couldn't attend the, uh, the Olympiad games, someone couldn't... Uh, they, they knew of the games, of uh, the Olympiad games, they couldn't attend because this was you know, held in a different city or a different uh, area, and these were a humble people, they definitely knew about the Ismythian games. These were held in Corinth, they were hosted there, and they were held in higher frequency. So culturally, this is a town that knew about sporting events and competition. So at the end of the event, uh, so there are, sorry, let me backtrack. So there's, there were five events in these Smithian Games. There were five events, two of which Paul talks about in our passage today. After these five events were run, there was a solitary judge who would preside over the event. And at the end of the event, he would award everyone, uh, each winner, the prize. It, they, they were run a little bit different, and we'll understand that, actually, uh, we, we understand this right now, but there was no first place, second place, or third place winner. There was just one winner. To those of us familiar with the Olympic Games today, there's a gold, there's a silver, there's a bronze. Um, but this was not the case during uh, the Games um, back when Paul wrote uh, to, the, uh, to the Corinthians. There was only one winner. He says so in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all, sorry, do you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So Paul sets up with a rhetorical question. This is is a question that doesn't really need an answer because the answer that he's eliciting is this. Well, obviously, one person breaks the finish line when, you know, you complete a marathon. Only one person can break that finish line. There's only one winner. It's kind of the obvious question that Paul puts forward. And by today's standards, we also kind of understand that because even in, the, for example, in the things like the Olymp, uh, Olympic Games, there, there is only one gold medal winner. There's ultimately only one first place winner. So we understand this. But Paul says this. Paul, again, he, he immediately follows up at the end of the verse. He says, so run that you may obtain it. And that seems somewhat intuitive, and it should be. If there's one winner in a race and you're, you're faced with many competitors and there's only one winner, you ought to run. There can only be one winner, therefore you have to run with endurance. And that's, and Paul, Paul starts off this analogy quite simply. If there's one, one, one race, one winner, we should run with endurance. And that's going to be the application, something we can apply right now. It is this, again, run with endurance. The Greek word used at the end of verse 24 is uh, katalambano, a think my pronunciation's good there, but catalambano is used at the end of this verse, and it's, it's an imperative verse. It's a, it's a forceful verse. It's not a passive, um, not a passive verb of one remaining sitting there. Or something. It's a forceful verse that says to lay hold of or to attain to the prize. It's, it's, it's powerful. Paul intends for us to run with endurance. For anyone who's ever done any running before in their lives or any kind of competition, you know that it takes more than just being physically fit. There's a mental aspect. There is an aspect that goes beyond the physical element of just running and competing a race. When the lungs are burning and doubt begins to set in and and the mind of the competitor begins to overcome him, this is when we require endurance. Shane read it earlier, uh, Hebrews 12:1, and it it says this, uh, turning to Hebrews real quickly. Paul, again, used, many of the New Testament writers use these sports analogies to convey their point because they understood the importance of competition and how it is that we as as, uh, image bearers of God, those made in His image and likeness, ought to compete. So it says this in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was, set, uh, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Run with endurance. Run. Isaiah 40, 31 says something similar. It says, But, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not grow weary. They shall, they shall walk and not faint. A competitor for the kingdom, again, we are all competitors in one sense or another, but, the con- but a competitor for the kingdom sets his mind on the Lord and he runs hard. As everyone looks around their life and takes note of where God has placed them, every single person unique in their ministry, God has placed you there. As, as you lay about the, the landscape, take note, whatever it is, run with endurance. So be it your school studies, those of you in, 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 uh, in university, in our work, in our places of work, uh, honoring our employers, uh, in our parenting. Those of us who, uh, who are parents, who will be parents, honor your children, honor your spouse, your discipleship. As brothers and sisters come alongside, you run those races with endurance. Don't be lackluster about it. Lay hold of God's glory and run. Again, this verb, uh, katalambano. Run and lay hold of the prize. Grab it. Run for it. So that's our first piece of application. So again, run with endurance. I haven't said that enough. Run with it. But that is just the beginning. We we all know that it isn't just uh, zeal that God demands of us. Zeal is a good place to start, and it is the starting point. Paul does start here. But it is not the only thing that he talks about. There is more. So while this is a good start, you know, run with zeal, the next question we have to answer is, what is the prize? That is the next obvious question, and I think kids get this because kids say, okay, if I'm gonna go somewhere, I'm gonna wanna get something from my troubles, and I wanna know what's in it for me. So again, so the question realistically is, well, what is the prize? So I'm gonna do something a little different today. Uh, be it maybe my, kinda my, my, leanings towards visuals and stuff just in terms of work. I like to bring things, I'm gonna try to demonstrate a little bit about what, um, what, it, is to, it, looks, uh, what it looks like to compete. So uh, maybe for the kids, cause the kids probably enjoy this more. What, uh, what am I holding here? What is something, what is this? A yes, a metal. This is a, what color would this metal be? Yeah, this isn't my medal by the way, I, found, I don't have any of these, I have to borrow this one. <laughs> but, but this is a gold medal, right? So this is a gold medal. This, this this means what? So, if I have a gold medal, that means what? You won something? Yes, but that means I came in first. That's right, I this a first-place winner, right? Uh, medals are actually pretty, they're, they're kind of new, actually, as I was reading and studying more about medals. They're actually kind of a new introduction within the last couple hundred years. Uh, historically, though, there was actually different what, what the competitors of the Olympiad Games and the Smithian Games uh, uh, would compete for. So this. I made this yesterday, out of, so <laughs> hopefully it's not too distracting, but you guys, hopefully you guys can see this. It's, this is a wreath and it, I won't wear it for very long, but, oh. but that's, that, is, that is the wreath, it was made out of olive shoots. And we look at that, so if we are gonna compare the two, there's a difference in quality in many ways, right? We're looking at this, there's, there's a quality difference here. And that's not by accident. Whereas in on one hand we have a sol- you know, solid gold medal And another, we have a perishable wreath. Both are physical objects, and both have their their lifespan, as it were. But this was the prize. This was the prize. So as we're looking and we're considering what it looks like to be a competitor, and we're considering what 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 would motivate, what would compel someone to run a race, run a race with endurance, what compels someone? We have to understand the prize is something that we have to understand as well. So if you're if you're taking notes, um, again the second point is this. Uh, the heading for the for it, it for the second point is the great prize. So continuing in our passage. So again, just to bring us back to our passage, let's move some of the stuff over. Um, again, Paul, just to bring us back, is digging deeper into this analogy. So he set up this idea about being a competitor. You know, he's made he's going to reference a couple games, but now he's going to dig even further. Again, these. And to be clear, these uh, activities and these sorry, these events that would take place um, back in the days of Corinth, they were different. They're not like the, Olympia, uh, the Olympic Games that take place today that take uh, place over the course of weeks and more are added and some are removed, and you have to find slots for all these thousands of competitors who uh, descend on whatever city they're competing in. These were done pretty quickly. These games, by comparison, could be finished very, very quickly within a day or two. And as a result, Winners were crowned quite quickly. So winners would would win their events, and by the end of it, they were crowned quite quickly, and the solitary judge would uh, would preside over the event, and he would reward each winner a wreath. I won't pull it again, but the wreath would fall on the head of the winner. In verse 25, Paul says this, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, which is interesting. Let's just Again, keep in mind what, who Paul is speaking to here, even in First Corinthians alone. Even if, as we look at First Corinthians, and we do somewhat of a flyby over of, of this idea, Paul. this isn't the first time Paul has talked about discipline. This is, this is a reoccurring theme, this is a reoccurring idea, and uh, an imperative that Paul continues to reinforce to this church. Again, an immature church, but he wants them to get the point to discipline themselves. Again, just looking at 1 Corinthians, if you flip through the book, Many times, he's done this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 12 to 20, he talks about sexual immorality, abstaining of sexual sin. In chapter seven, he talks about marriage. If you look at verse nine in chapter seven, it says, uh, note the word self-control, especially when it comes to courting, especially in being godly in your conduct towards your betrothed. Again, abstinence, self-control, godliness. In 1 Corinthians 8, he instructs the church regarding matters of food and abstaining from that food for the sake of others. And this is just up to, you know, chapter 9. He again brings up this this idea of discipline and self-control. And this won't even be the last time he does it. He'll do it again in chapter 10, and more thereafter. So Paul is driving this point forward. Discipline, discipline, discipline. In other words, Paul is urging. Paul is urging the believers in Corinth, uh, like it says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, Train yourselves for godliness. Train yourselves. This is an intentional activity. This is t- intentional thinking that he puts them through. However, what makes the ending of chapter 9 so different is the stark difference that he puts before the church in Corinth. This idea, this mental image he's putting forward is different than the other times that he's referenced it. What he's doing is he's putting in stark contrast to what the world offers versus the rewards that are stored for, up for us in heaven. So again, he's comparing to the earthly wreath versus the incorruptible that is to be ours in heaven. For competitor in early games, so the early game competitors, they would abstain and discipline their bodies. Anyone who's disciplined in their sporting activity understands this, um, the physical strain of training for a competition um, is grueling. You You gotta get up early, you gotta discipline your diet, you gotta eat clean, you have to go to bed early, you have to rest. All these things require discipline and it's grueling and it's difficult and what was the reward what's the reward we looked at it a second ago what's the reward a wreath this is I I intentionally didn't put much time into this because I think it probably would have wasted my time to put more effort into this but the illustration stands true this is a corruptible prize this is a decaying reward Paul says in 25 if they do it to receive a perishable wreath in in due time that wreath will not exist it will be decaying and it will be worm food but what he says right after he says but we the Christian the believer we strive for the imperishable the imperishable If competitors were to discipline themselves, were to agonize their bodies and discipline their bodies for the the sake of their competition, how much greater should the zeal of the Christian be in light of the incorruptible, the prize that lays ahead of us at the end of this race that we run? How much greater should our zeal be, especially comparing this, this corruptible wreath versus the incorruptible? Competitors... Again, just to put it in context, so the competitors would yearn, right? These competitors, these these people would run, they would run hard races, and they would yearn for the chance to receive a floral wreath from human hands who truly don't give human, who can truly bestow no true honor. And then Paul says, how much greater is the crown bestowed to us from the hands of Jesus Christ himself? If we understand the prize, we stand, uh, we stand again by running a faithful race that it in itself makes discipline more fulfilling. What is difficult and what is grueling about, di- about discipline becomes a blessing because we know that we labor for something greater than, than a wreath or even the, the world's most wealthiest of gifts. Matthew 8 and 36, Jesus Christ says, What profits a man if he gains the world but forfeits his soul? People are running for prizes and gifts that ultimately will will forfeit their soul, but they run hard. Therefore, how hard should we be running as Christians? Looking back at Hebrews, I'm going to spend some time in Hebrews again. Uh, Hebrews 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 24 to 26, it says this of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Note this, verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to to the reward. Moses was looking to the reward. He forsook his earthly inheritance, earthly heritage, for the incorruptible wealth in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He looked to him Instead of a life of opulence, living a life of the fleeting pleasures of sin, he chose Christ versus the temporary corruptible. So like Moses, Moses understood this, Paul understood this, and we should understand this. This is how we can apply this right now. It says this, know the prize we are to receive. So again, if you're taking notes, know the prize. Be familiar with the prize that you're going to receive. <clears throat> to learn more of Jesus is also to understand that he desires to bless us. So if we call Jesus our own and we learn more of him, we also understand that Jesus Christ is a very wealthy and loving uh, master. He gives and he bestows in abundance. So we should start by learning those blessings. We can learn about this, the one another's of scripture. Those are, those are blessings that immediately serve, provide fruit in our lives the peace of salvation beyond all understanding, even in the midst of of suffering. We can know this. We can know that Jesus Christ is there. And that is one of the prizes, amazingly, that we have peace, even in the midst of of toiling uh, times. The love and wonders of his scriptures, again, the miracle that the Bible is, is all for us. One might say the vast size alone of all the blessings and knowing your Bible, just knowing it, you might come away saying, This is an impossible task. He is too big to know. He is too grand to understand. And in one sense, yes, he is. I'll say that again. In one sense, he is as big as he looks. He is impossibly big. And that is comfort to us. If Jesus Christ is our prize, as we draw near to the throne of grace, as we learn more of him, we learn of his blessings, we learn of his character, this in and of itself, as we understand the holiest of holies, this becomes spiritual food for the race. As we learn more of the grandeur of Jesus Christ and we esteem him as as we should, and we know the prize, how much greater does that prize look as we run? In moments where we stumble and fall, when competition becomes heavy or we face adversity, how much greater is that? When the prize is so grand, is so wonderful. It says in Ephesians um, 1, chapter, or sorry, uh, chapter 1, verse 11 to 14. It talks about this inheritance that we are blessed with. We are blessed with an inheritance, brothers and sisters. An amazing inheritance sealed to us by the promised Holy Spirit. And this is an inheritance that has been with us from the beginning. That God has planned for us and and intends to give us. It says this, again, Ephesians 1, verse 11 to 14, it says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, it says this, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There are treasures waiting for us in heaven, brothers and sisters the more we familiarize ourselves and the more we know the prize, that in uh, in and of itself is fuel for the race. That as we draw nearer and nearer to this prize, we should run harder. As we esteem it and we can see it in the horizon, we should pursue this. So know it. So know the prize. So again, that was the second point. And before I get into the, the third point um, that Paul... Uh, we're going to linger here a little bit while longer, but... In one sense, again, I'm gonna draw on the kids here because uh, we all understand competition, and I like competition, as a, um, and I kind of have a mental picture and a kind of an analogy I wanna paint. Um, so I want, I want, I'll, I'll speak to the kids, but I want us all to kind of imagine what's going on here. Imagine that I were to take uh, all the kids that were present here, and we are lining them up for an event, for, it's the, school big tr- the big school track day. I think uh, I remember that being the, uh, the case when I was a kid. I loved it. And likely most of you have done this as well. But there's a big school track day. And the last big event, I line up all the children. Everyone is lined up for the, the big race. So everyone, again, at the starting line. As we're waiting to start, I, I go to rile up the crowd. I go to jazz them up. And I, you know, I tell them, you know, run the race with endurance. There's a prize at the end of this. And everyone cheers. And everyone says, great. There's a, there's a prize here. Everyone's excited. I describe the prize a little bit, you know, as I I begin to describe it and, you know, you can make and you can see it and the kids start to understand, you know, the grandeur and the glory of this prize. They become more zealous and more excited and they're ready to begin the race. As everything quiets down, as they're waiting, they're asking questions, thinking, okay, where am I running? What does this race look like? How am I going to win it? I have to run hard and I know what I'm getting, but I don't know where I'm going. And I don't know how to get there. And as everyone waits, it becomes it grows with anticipation. In that moment, I grab my starting pistol and bang, the race starts. In that moment, to the horror of the witnesses around, pandemonium would begin. It would be chaos. It would be absolutely chaos. You would it would turn as chaotic as it as you can imagine it would be, you would see children running, you would see chaos, you'd be, some people are running backwards, you wouldn't know where you're going, and for good reason. There's good reason why this is the case. Actually, some of you may be familiar with this, but in uh, Shane and I's old um, employment, we actually were tasked with organizing a fun run at one point um, for uh, children, with the children that we served at the time. And um, and it it functioned. I mean, it, it went through. It wasn't a huge casualty, but it ran about as well as you'd expect it to, especially considering the kind of the clientele and the, and the kids that we work with in particular. It was kind of a sight. It was a sight to behold, and it was kind of like this. Even though that's this is a, a theoretical situation, it ran kind of like this. You know, when you know, as clear as we might have wanted to be, as clear and as as it's. Uh, we, with everything that we tried, with all our efforts, it was still, still kind of ran kind of like this. But actually, to draw us back to the passage, to draw us back to the last two verses, in verses 26 uh, and 27, this is actually a perfect analogy for, um, and perfect illustration for what it looks like not to heed the warning. Because Paul ends our third point, which is this. Stick to the rules. We've got to stick to the rules those last two verses, verses 26 and 27, are actually warning passages. And when, and when we look at these, we have to understand that they are they're meant for a very particular reason. Spiritually, we would be no different than any of the kids that Shane and I might have worked with in the past or any of the kids in a chaotic run uh, that is unsupervised or unwarned. And it, it is spiritually damaging. And we need to heed this warning. In verse 26, Paul says... So I do not run aimlessly. He does not run aimlessly. Races have starting and finish lines. There's a beginning and an end. There are also boundaries. And if you hope to win the race, if you hope to attain to the prize, then you need to stick within, you need to adhere to the boundaries. Runners in the Olympic games and competitors don't run across the field in in a sprint. They run within their constrictions, and they run hard. Paul digs in further, and he says to anyone who's familiar with boxing, he says, and I do not box as one beating the air. Paul, understanding pugilism, understanding boxing, those who who study it and know it and appreciate it, know that boxing isn't just about throwing punches. Boxers are very disciplined. It's one of the hardest sports, and in the moment... Unbeknownst to maybe what you might not understand watching, it's a very disciplined sport. Every shot, every slip, everything is calculated. There is no wasted energy in boxing. Boxers who sit down and load up on a big shot, there's there's an understanding in boxing that anyone who would do this, anyone who, who, who really lays into one shot at a big haymaker and misses, it would be better for that guy never to have thrown that punch because all the energy and all the wasted effort that has gone into wasting that punch will have consequences later on as he runs that energy because he's not beating the air, he's facing an opponent. Paul knew this, Paul knew this. Paul, Paul was a pugilist himself, I believe, and by, the, um, and by all intents and purposes, the, this is a perfect analogy, we ought not waste that energy. It's a calculated run, we need to stick to the rules, stick to the rules of running, stick to the rules of boxing. Spiritually, it is foolishness for us to see the world, its, its wisdom, and to pursue its methods. Looking at Romans uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 10 to 18, it says this. <clears throat> As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear. Brothers and sisters, the the world is lost. The world is truly lost. The world and its wisdom is utter folly. It's foolishness. And Without the saving grace of God in our lives, we are no different. We run aimlessly. We flail about like children. We don't understand. Paul, knowing this, he says in verse 27, he, I discipline my body and keep it under control. I actually like the annotation at the bottom. I don't know if you guys have it as well. Um, I, th- I find it to be more forceful, actually. Um, and the annotation in mine says this: "I pummel my body and make it a slave. I pummel my body and make it a slave." That is a lot more forceful, and probably more in line with what it takes to be a competitor for the Lord. Paul lived this example. Paul lived it out to the, to the ends. In his last epistle in Second Timothy chapter four, uh, verses uh, six to eight, he says this. Again, this is Paul's last epistle. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Paul knows his execution isn't coming. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have have loved his appearance. Brothers and sisters, our last point here, so again, our application, how we apply this to our lives, how this, how this washes our lives, how this paints the rest of our, our spiritual walk is this. Stick to the rules. Stick to the rules. Lord, help me as I try to convey this. this is a, I'm going to try to convey a really tragic situation that Paul's laying out here. And Lord willing, like I said, you'll understand this because this is tragic. Imagine this, a life having preached the gospel. A life that has led so many to the narrow gate. Imagine this. Imagine you you lead a life where others are blessed by it, led to the narrow gate. But at the end of life's journey, having run a difficult race, you reach death's horizon. You're on the precipice of, of death. And it says in verse 27, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Imagine that. Living a life of preaching the gospel, living a life leading others to the narrow gate, loving people, seeing them come to the saving faith of Jesus Christ, only so that you could be disqualified right at the end. When we come to passages like this one as believers, these, these are like lit, lit, uh, litmus tests. In other words, these tests, these verses that come up, should already, should already confirm what we believe to be there. To those who profess Jesus Christ as Savior and desire to win Him the glory, a passage like verse 27 should strike our hearts in fear. It It should be like plunging in icy cold water when you read something like this. The very idea, again, Lord help me here. Imagine this idea of you standing before the great white throne, before the judge of judge himself, the King of glory. You stand before him and he says these words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That should fill our hearts with fear and trembling. If you would claim Christ as your own, heed these passages, brothers and sisters. Heed them and let them steer you straight. Stick to the rules of the race, lest you be disqualified. It should, it should, be, should convict you. These should be like a dagger in your soul. To hear the great judge of judge say this to you would, should rend your heart in two and to those who read verse 27 to those who hear it to those who hear these words and feel nothing no fear no concern nor dread they feel nothing they are dead and i urge you to reevaluate your heart as i stand here before the pulpit and i stand here in the midst of all these um, all these staring eyes my heart breaks i've been agonizing over this verse because The very notion that this might apply to some of you within this crowd breaks my heart. There are some of you to which this verse may apply, and that is heartbreaking. If you truly don't feel any fear, any dread, any reverence for verse 27, for the understanding of how in peril your soul is, I would like to speak to you after if if you are open to it. Because you need to understand that your very soul is at stake here. To those of us who profess Christ, this is this is like a dagger to your soul. And to those who don't feel that dagger, I would urge you to reevaluate your soul. <clears throat> so, as we conclude, as we kind of as we draw um, our time today is uh, in a close. Again, as we leave, we'll consider that we've been talking about some pretty pretty tremendous stuff. We've been talking about a heavenly reward. We are encouraged. This should be a really, actually, this should be, should be an invigorating passage. We should be encouraged by this. We've, we've talked about heavenly rewards. We've talked about, you know, running this race with endurance. We should take joy in that, you know, running with endurance um, because we know that there's a great and mighty prize that weighs for us. And if we stick to these rules, we won't disqualify ourselves. And that should be invigorating. That should be highly encouraging, brothers and sisters. But, but remember, while we leave here encouraged, for uh, all the blessings that you know, Paul has conveyed here and that lie uh, in wait for us. <clears throat> we do so only because we receive a crown not earned by our own merits. The same word used for wreath in verse 25, um, it's the same word that is found earlier in the Gospels. Except it isn't a, a crown of glory. It isn't a prize of a, of a, of a race well run. It's, it's not that at all. Actually, it is a bitter crown of shame, of thorns. That same word that Paul uses here describes the bitter crown of thorns that crowned our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And not a crown that any man should envy. Nobody wanted this. Nobody, nobody would ever jump into that situation. Not a crown of glory. There's no wealth. Nothing but shame and derision. And yet, Jesus Christ, bearing that crown for such lowly sinners, such as us, so that in return, we would be so privileged to enter into His glory, that He would be the one to bestow us our prize. I want us to take encouragement in that. I really do. And as for fuel for some worship, as we conclude today, I want to just read the last verse of, and can it be? I just want to read this last verse. And let this be our hearts, brothers and sisters. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne. And, brothers and sisters, claim this and claim the crown through Christ, my own. Claim the crown through Jesus. Run to him, repent, be washed of sin, and run this race, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, how great are you. How great you are, Lord, your son not sparing. Stood condemned in our place. Condemned he stood. Bearing a crown of thorns, he was despised. And he was pierced that in return, he would bestow upon us a rich inheritance. And a crown of glory. Let this be our hearts' cry and plea until we run to our, uh, to our final breath, praise the Lord Jesus, praise Him. We ask, Lord, we, give us the hearts to praise Him, to bestow upon Him the honor and glory that is due. Father, as He bore that, that wretched crown of thorns, that we in return would receive a crown of glory placed on our heads so lovingly by such gentle hands. I pray Father that we would have the strength to heed your warnings that we would not that we would not turn away from the from the warnings from a life lived of disobedience to disqualify ourselves from this prize father to look and live a life of disobedience but rather father that we would step and strive with one another that we would strive for the holiest of holies father knowing that it is for his glory that we labor that as we approach the, the the royal throne, that we approach the white throne boldly, we can do so confidently, Lord, knowing that we lived a life of obedience. We thank you, Lord, from the very depths of our souls to the praise and to the awesome Savior that is Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.